to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fulick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to disaster recovery, business continuity, resiliency, crisis management, anything that is relatable to those topics. As always, speaking of topics, if there is something you'd like us to talk about on the show or bring forward, please feel free. Go to the Voice America webpage for the show, and there's a button underneath the graphic, the show graphic, that says send the host an email, and you can ask me any questions or send me ideas for topics or see about getting yourself on the show. I do get all emails, and I do respond to all emails. I'd like to remind everyone, I will be at the Teams Conference, the International Emergency Management Society Conference, this year, November 12th to 15th, in Seoul, Korea. So if anybody's attending that conference, I look forward uh, to maybe meeting you. Uh, stop by, say hello. Also, if there's any opportunity, anyone that wants to advertise their product or service, we do have some sponsorships available on the show. Again, send me an email and uh, we'll get you uh, set up and we'll send you some information. Today's show is brought to us by BoastAssessment.com, B-O-A-S-T, Assessment.com, and their application that allows you to track your uh, program status. And as you go through the years of building your program resiliency, they've got an application to help you track where you are in all the different areas. Long-time listeners, you will know that I love to read. Uh, I read a lot, a couple of books a week, um, on everything from fantasy, science fiction, to biographies, history, and of course, a lot about disaster recovery and business continuity, etc. And today um, is no different. I reached out to authors of a book that I found, and I wanted to reach out to them because I thought it was an interesting topic. The book is called Dull Disasters, with a question mark. How Planning Ahead Will Make a Difference. And I have one of the authors today, Professor Stefan Durkan. Stefan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. Before we get started, I just want to say you co-wrote the book um, with another gentleman who couldn't be with us, uh, Daniel Clark. Um, So congratulations on the book, first of all. And before we get too far into the show, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you are, what you do, and you know how the book came about? Right. Um, well, well, thank you for having me on the show. Um, I am an academic. I've been working in academia for the last 25 years, and I'm an economist that works on very poor communities, mainly in Africa. I've worked a lot in countries like Ethiopia and Tanzania, and my interests are about how poor people cope with extreme events, how, you know, their form of business continuity on their small farms, on their small business that they have, how they actually cope with big catastrophic events and, and uh, the aftermath of it. Um, I was also lucky uh, about eight years ago to be asked to serve um, in the UK Development Agency. It's called the Department for International Development, DFIT. Uh, as its chief economist, so I was essentially the chief advisor to the agency for uh, about six, seven years. Um, and that gave me a chance to travel to all kinds of places, but also think much more about how do we try to avoid that these extreme poor people actually have to suffer so much during these kind of extreme events. Well, great. Well, I'm happy to have you on the show. I'm glad I reached out, and I'm glad you accepted my invitation to be here. My first question, because this is what really caught my attention, the title, Dull Disasters, with a question mark. Can you explain what you mean by that? (laughs) Yes. Um, I can assure you that my publishers weren't sure at first, but we wanted to (laughs) get to the following. You know, when... When we hear about a big disaster and we're thinking here like a big drought or Ebola or a hurricane or an earthquake, especially in a very poor setting, you know, the way we get to know about it is usually via media, via kind of 
images of suffering, of um, all kinds of things that are happening, destruction around it, but also um, a lot of excitement in some sense. It's very sad, but it's all like immediacy of reporting around it. There is a lot going on, and we also get in the responses a lot of people that end up in these places uh, trying to get aid to a particular place and you get also the stories that journalists tell us that things are not going well and it's all complicated and you know in some sense we just would love to have a very dull disaster where something extreme happens in these four communities where things are quite well prepared for it that agencies that come for, to support it whether it's government or from outside don't have to make so much fuss about it and that actually we can make sure that these people's lives, even though, of course, there will be disruption, but it can get back to normal as quickly as possible. So we thought, could we just dull these disasters a little bit and make them a little bit more boring for journalists to actually talk and write and make careers on? Well, actually, I just thought of a question as you said that. If we do that, would that hinder our ability to you know, help people or communities or regions that have been hit by a disaster if we do make them dull? Well, the way we think about it here, and that's, that's really the theme of the book, and you, you also read the subtitle aloud, you know, how planning ahead will make a difference. Of course, we do want these communities to be helped. And we do know, actually, it's already research that is for a very long time well established that media play a very positive role to make sure that problems that emerge, including extreme events, that they get attention. But what we wanted to avoid, though, is that the, the whole excitement around that is the, is the main story in itself. And we have observed, and I have that definitely from experience and also studying some of these extreme events, that one of the consequences of uh, this kind of massive attention after the disaster, um, it becomes almost attractive politically to be seen and to be a big leader, to throw all the preparation uh, away and actually being showing yourself to be the leader, showing yourself to be the agency that comes to the rescue and so on. And we kind of would like, you know, just much more beforehand careful planning through what would we do if certain things happen? Can we make sure that the responses are ready, that there is a bit of a calmer response? And, of course, we do want the media and people to, 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 to uh, pay attention to it. But it can't just be the whole story. And we should make sure that we invest much more in the preparedness and in the financing beforehand so that actually the responses are, are maybe a bit less exciting and they go away. And to give you a simple example, the one that I find very striking is, you know, there was a very big earthquake in Mexico City in 1987, and um, very large numbers of people were, were killed. Uh, it was definitely in the tens, if not uh, hundreds of thousands across the country that in the end um, uh, died. And so I think Mexico City had a very large number of casualties. It was in the news. It was politically important. The politicians in charge at the time, they lost power. But um, fortunately, after that event, a realization came in Mexico that actually they had to invest in much more preparedness. They had to invest in maybe things like building codes and so on, but also the way you would respond and prepare communities to when these things are happening, because earthquakes is part of life in Mexico. And then fairly recently, about a year and a half ago, there was another big earthquake in Mexico City, and I was very struck because on the Richter scale, you know the way we measure intensity of earthquakes, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It was roughly the same as the one, um, you know, a couple of decades earlier. But actually, far fewer people died. And after two days, nobody was reporting about it anymore. I thought that actually is what we mean. You know, of course, we need to pay attention. But don't make sure that there is no reason why we need to report on it for months and months afterwards. But actually, the responses are there. And then maybe it disappears from the news. And that actually would be the way I would like to see it happen. Is that because sometimes disasters, um, you know, create sensationalism and, you know, uh, people want to get on board to get their name out there, right? Is, is that yeah. that's one I mean, of the problems? Yeah, there, there, there is a whole series of things because there's a lot of that, a lot of the, uh, there are a lot of consequences from the fact that you don't work much harder on preparedness and it's all about the immediacy. Just give a, 
a, a couple of examples. One thing is that is already a problem with what we tend to call slow-onset disasters, you know, like a drought where it takes time before we start seeing the consequences. Well, if it is in the end driven only by the attention it gets in media from politicians, usually we end up responding too late. I think Ebola in Western Africa in uh, 2014 and 15 was an example. We knew that Ebola was present there. I was working for the development agency in the UK. We knew it was present roughly in February 2014. But it took really until June, July before it really got attention internationally, and then the responses came. So it becomes a, a bit of a problem that, you know, if we, if we wait until there is enough attention to get actually political attention, then actually we may well come late. There's other problems as well. If, if we wait in terms of organizing our responses until after the event and we start doing that and say oh we need now money we need to get money together and we do big appeals in the in the media to try to do this one of the consequences is that those who raise the funds and typically want to stay in control of it and they're very reluctant to start working together with different players on the ground so we had for example in Nepal after 2015 a very big earthquake hit uh, big parts of the country um, we had probably something like 7,000 different NGOs giving relief afterwards. And everybody then later on said, oh, well, it should have been coordinated well. But, of course, you know, everybody likes co to coordinate, but nobody likes to be coordinated. And if, if this is not beforehand arranged and organized well, we get in these kinds of situations. And, again, a lot of people meant well and did good things. These NGOs did really try to do their very best. But... It, it has to come much more beforehand, you know, the, a response to the disaster um, that only starts really at the moment of the disaster, or at least that only shows itself uh, at that moment in terms of the response, it's probably too late, and, and we, we, we get in very poor responses as a, as a result. You mentioned a couple of uh, things there. I, I found it interesting you mentioned Nepal as an example. I spoke with um, Professor Meen Chitri from Nepal who was heavily involved with that um, disaster. And he was on the show, I, I guess, a year and a half ago, talking about that. And he said the same thing you just said, you know, some of the problems with yeah. the coordination, you know, and, and um, it, it kind of leads me to one of the questions that we were going to talk about is, what are some of the other problems leading up to disasters, you know, prior to a disaster, during a disaster, and after a disaster? That there, yeah. you, you, you point some of them out in the, the book that there's problems with each of those kind of phases. So, so if you start just in the aftermath, you know, the, the kind of sensationalism, as you call it, you know, the kind of attention, the adrenaline that is around the whole response, you know, we, we observed on fragmentation, lack of coordination, um, and then, of course, with the longer-term consequences that actually the recovery comes too slow, uh, the responses are, are not best targeted, and then the lives being, being, being affected. One of the other features of, of all these responses then is typically to do with, with the finance, you know, and Nepal is a really good example to show what are the consequences of it. You know, a lot of money was pledged for the reconstruction of Nepal, but mm -hmm. because it, it was um, by the time that the, that the disaster hit, all the plans that were made beforehand, in fact, I was in the country less than a year before that, and I was actually visiting offices, and every office had endless manuals of how they were going to respond to the crisis. But because it wasn't clear who was going to respond, how they were going to respond, and how it was going to be financed, the moment that the disaster hit, actually all these plans went out of the window because they were not credible. And in Nepal, it's very striking, a lot of money was mobilized fairly quickly for reconstruction. So the earthquake happened in May of 2015. It took until December of that year, until the cabinet, the political cabinet, the different partners in government, uh, could agree of how they were going to use the money. So, you know, and it, it comes down to so that. These are the features that we then see at that moment. Uh, that are um, playing out. And so we end up with very poor decision-making, with very poor coordination and, 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 and implementation of, of, of responses, but also on the funding. Because doing responses badly is expensive. 
And as a result, mm-hmm. resources tend to be used very inefficiently as well. And so even though you can maybe not start mobilizing money, they're actually not used very well either. And so if we want to do something about it beforehand, we need to start thinking about all these three things, you know, how decisions are made about who and what is going to be the response, what the content of your responses is, and how you think through how you will finance them to make actually any plans you make credible afterwards. Well, on that, we've come to the end of our first segment, and I've got a few questions uh, for you based on uh, what you were just telling us. So today, we're talking with Professor Stefan Durkan and his book, Dull Disasters, How Planning Ahead Will Make a Difference. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Looking for the best show about horse racing and handicapping? Want to play the ponies? Join us every week for Winning Ponies with John Engelhart, racing's regular guy, where you'll go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, agents, and handicappers in the world of horse racing. This show is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies handicapping website. Listen for top plays for the weekend and the spot play of the week and win prizes just for calling in. Winning Ponies with John Engelhart is live Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Sports Network. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. Today, we're talking with Professor Stefan Durkan, the author of Dull Disasters, How Planning Ahead Will Make a Difference. Stefan, in the first segment, you brought up a couple of good points, especially at the end here. Um, one about plans sometimes not being credible. Can you elaborate on that, especially with your uh, Nepal uh, example? What, In your uh, vast experience, what makes sometimes you know, these plans you know, not credible, unworkable? Right. Well, thank you, and that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, if we think back in in it all, um, I just remember there was like eight nine months before uh, the earthquake hit. So we were going around different government departments and talking actually about disaster preparedness and what they were doing. And you know, one of the most striking things is this this endless. Um, documentation about all the things they were going to do. And so almost every department, every organization, every NGO had to some extent, you know, more or less a manual of all the things they were going to do. But the problem with a lot of these kind of bureaucratic planning processes is that you're totally dependent on, first of all, someone deciding to actually stick to them. And secondly, you need to be able to implement. I mean, that typically means to have the resources, human, but definitely also financial, to actually do it. And so often, when, what we then get is that, well, you know, the moment a disaster happened, and in Nepal it definitely happened, where the, politics, the politicians wanted to take control, and they wanted to make their response 
But that it meant, actually, a lot of the preparation that was done, they didn't really want to listen to it because it might have to be their response. Even with organizations that, that, that uh, were active, they wanted now suddenly to be seen to be doing the response. So if they have made arrangements with others to work together and so on, it became much more, it was their plan. And funding, of course, is a key part. Who controls the mm-hmm. funding at that moment? Who has the funding? Will, in the end, be the most credible. And it's, the, it's that part of, you know, how the financing is happening that actually will provide, you know, whether, um, whether will provide the kind of means to make a plan in the end credible. Um, if a decision maker says, I want this to happen and here are the resources, then you can do it. If another one says, no, I want another one or I want to use my resources in another way, then all this preparatory work that is typically you know, done in committees, bureaucratic work, very sensible often, just doesn't have any credibility anymore. Is, is that, and this leads me to the, to the other point, the decision-making process, is that one reason why these plans are not, uh, you know, or don't become credible in real situations is because that decision-making process isn't really fully defined ahead of time? Or... Yes, and that's exactly right. Or even if it is... And a feature of a lot of these these responses, and it comes back to, you know, there there is a real immediacy around it. You know, there's a real crisis happening. We shouldn't underestimate it, the kind of pressure that decision makers are put under. And, you know, they may think beforehand, oh, well, if something like that happens, let's call a crisis committee, come together, we'll then discuss and so on. You can do endless simulations beforehand, to do this and you will discuss it in a detached way. At that moment, you need rules of thumbs. Actually, you need triggers. You need rules. You need something mm-hmm. to say, well, we are pre-committed to do certain things. And to give an example in a, in a case of a, of, of a big drought, you know, often when we get, it, we get a drought, that's not an immediate moment, but you kind of say, well, maybe the rain will still come or maybe something else will happen. Maybe it won't be that bad. And you kind of delay the decision um, rather than what would be a much better way of making decisions is to actually saying pre-committed, pre-committing mm-hmm. that if a certain uh, extent of a drought is measured, we automatically have to respond. You know, this is very simple behavioral economics, behavioral science, and this is actually a very simple thing. In lots of other walks of life, we've seen this. This is about, you know, we, we, we are often procrastinating um, and like status quo, the things that are happening to keep on following through, we don't really like often to take a dramatic decision and, and, and change something. So my proposal on that would always be, when, when you deal with crisis, you want to actually predefine certain actions, and you have predefined triggers. And then you do it. Now, then, once an action happens, for example, I'm going to commit that in 100 days, you know, the drought is happening in 100 days, there may actually be real hunger in, your, in, in parts of the country. Say in 100 days, there will be a safety net program active. And we'll start now counting the clock from day 100, 99, 98, and so on. You're still mm-hmm. allowed to stop it, but at least you've started the process to do this. The same in an extreme event, an earthquake happens. It should almost be, oh, the earthquake happens. This is this kind of scale. We automatically start doing this. Maybe you can then start fine-tuning it and stopping it a bit, and then we can start responding. And it's a, it's, a very, it's, it's a very human reaction not to immediately take the right decision. Well, now why don't we pre-code it? And then you can actually fine-tune it while things are happening. And that's, and that's again, something that often doesn't happen. If I may just, in Ebola, that was a very striking thing. I think I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier this idea that we knew in February, we knew in February 2014 there was Ebola in West Africa. If we had spent then 10 million pounds or 10 million dollars on trying to stop it when about, you know, less than 100 people were affected, we probably mm-hmm. would have easily been able to stop it. It took until by July before the huge international aid came about, before an international emergency was declared, and actually the huge aid started happening. By then, tens of thousands people were affected, and in the end, of course, we know that 13,000 people died. And between, say, the UK and the US and France, probably easily something like seven, eight, nine billion dollars was spent in trying to overcome this crisis. I'm going to go the other direction for a moment. With the decision-making process, what if you 
do have decision points and triggers and um, uh, you know, pre-criteria defined, something occurs and then somebody, because you mentioned uh, politicians, uh, and I guess that would be a good example here, suddenly jump in and change that plan. How do you manage that? Is, is it because they weren't involved or they didn't want to involve, or does that go back to your comment, you know, they're posturing? Yeah, no, and that's, that's an excellent point. I mean, and I will be really totally frank and honest with you here. You know, when you read the book, you will know, and we do say it, the politics is still the hardest part of it. The political economy of it. We can, we can get a whole series of things. We can probably do so much better. But we will need politicians who beforehand can credibly commit to take certain actions when things are happening. It's a very interesting thing that we see this, or, uh, we see this all the time that this has happened um, more and more. Um, let me actually give an example. At the time of Katrina in the U.S., Hurricane Katrina, there was definitely a problem there that there were no clear trigger points and who should act when. You know, these days, that has been far, in, far better improved. And in some sense, a trust that actually it is clear of how the decision will be taken and who will take it if a risk needs to be done. We've seen it in the UK, we see it in other countries, and we've seen it in some developing countries where there's a much clearer decision-making process. But politicians, they will have to play ball. There's a very, it's quite similar, actually, to the one, and it's a very different area. You know how, as economists, we have learned that a central bank in an economy needs to have at some extent of, of, of independence from the politics, and that will help your economy. We're thinking of something very sim- similar. You know, uh, we need to have groups of people that are entrusted institutionally to make sensible decisions around something and depoliticize it on some of these really crucial things. So that it's still the weakness, but there are certain things. And I'm sure if we later on talk a bit about the financing arrangements, there are mm-hmm. ways we can start building this in to create additional credibility that, 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 that should be attractive also to political leaders. Well, that actually leads me to my next point. I was going to ask you about the financial part. In your book, you have a, uh, an interesting way of saying this. I'll let you do, um, explain it. But you call it begging bowls. What do you mean by that? And do you have any examples? Right. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, what is very interesting with the way crisis financing happens in countries, it's actually almost all over the world, and definitely when it's occurring in poorer settings is that when a big crisis happens, suddenly we all start fundraising. So we get Mm -hmm. um, local government appealing to central government to get money. We get poorer governments internationally appealing for money. We get NGOs, non-governmental organizations, launching appeals, and they all start appealing. And, you know, there's no other way to describe this way of financing, essentially, like using begging bowls. After something bad has happened, take out a begging bowl. Now, what's very strange about that is it would suggest that all financial innovation that has happened over about eight, 900 years in, uh, across the world, and not least in Western societies, is totally ignored, which is the emergence of systems of insurance, of systems of mutual funds, of mutual insurance systems, of credit, as if nothing that has happened on financial innovation actually should be used in the space of crisis financing, which is very striking because most people are, themselves will use alternative ways often of dealing it. Very few people will, uh, if they can help it, take out the begging bowls. What is then very striking that at the level of governments, internally and also then towards the rest of the world, we have this very medieval way of financing. It has real serious consequences. First of all, if you need to finance your response plan by, by going to beg, you have absolutely no certainty that you're going to raise the right amount of money. So already when you're preparing, but you have not thought about how you're going to finance it, what is the incentive to really make this very careful? 
What is the incentive of a politician beforehand to actually say, oh, no, I'll definitely implement a plan? The politician will say, I don't know what amount of money I will have. Why should I stick to it? And so this makes the financing part of all these preparedness plans so essential. And this is really what we need to avoid, is this entire culture of when something extreme happens, begging, whether it's from you know, citizens from local government or local governments from national government or national governments from the UN and from international community, uh, we want to avoid that that's the process that takes place. And we need to get a financial architecture that rewards those politicians and those institutions that plan and prepare by actually creating credibility on the funding. So what stops people from doing that crisis funding? Because you mentioned a, an interesting example with Nepal, you know, uh, sorry, not Nepal, um, the Ebola. If we had spent, uh, I forgot your numbers, uh, uh, apologies, but let's well, say 10, 10, million to, 10, 10 million dollars probably. Yeah, 10 million to stop it and ended up spending billions when it occurred. What stops politicians or organizations or communities or anybody from doing crisis you know, uh, financing when obviously the, the examples that are out there show that it makes sense to do? Yes. So at one level, um, you know, we wouldn't have written the book if, um, if, of course, organizations were doing it. We can only observe that they're not quite doing it. And we do recognize that there are at times incentives, whether it's for organizations or for political leaders, do not quite want to commit to that. Okay, I'll give you a couple of examples. It's actually really disturbing research that has been done. It's done in the U.S., it's done in India, Mexico, and other countries. People are working on similar things and finding uh, suggestive evidence for this. It's the following. When you, after crisis, declare disaster and be seen to be the one who finds money for you and then actually spend it, in most democratic societies, uh, you win extra votes with that. A presidential declaration in the U.S. actually wins votes. In India, it also creates a better chance of winning a local election. In Mexico, similar. If you spend a smaller amount, but better on being prepared for the disaster, and putting up, you know, um, pots of money to, to, to use afterwards, it has no impact on electoral success because it's not seen. Because actually success would mean that nobody notices it, that it's actually dull, that there is no gain to be had from the politician to be seen to be doing this. And it's a slightly disturbing research that actually exemplifies, you know, we do need leaders of organizations, we need politicians to be willing to say, look, we can get better outcomes but if it is all about, you know, being seen to be, be, be the leader, uh, you know, not least in, uh, in, in search of electoral gain, it's, it's arguably not what uh, a political strategist would uh, suggest them to do. That's one part of the story. And it's why I said earlier that politics is going to be a really key part. The other side is that until very recently... We didn't have the financial instruments and the financial infrastructure globally that could really make this, make, or do this in an efficient way. So that not just, you know, the UK or, or America could use some of these things, but indeed that, um, that actually also poor countries could start using better ways of funding these things. Because in the end, we're not providing funding for certainty. This is actually systems that can get you access to funding for things that may or indeed may not happen. And we know that putting money aside can be really expensive if there's a lot of other pressures. So you can't just build up big pots of money of billions to have ready. But, you know, we, we, we are now making quite a lot of progress on this, um, on this kind of architecture in this respect. I've got a question for you, but uh, we've got less than one minute in this segment, so I'm going to uh, end the segment now and ask you at the beginning of the uh, next segment. Today, we're talking with Professor Stefan Durkan, the author of Dull Disasters, How Planning Ahead Will Make a Difference, and we'll be right back.
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast all the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. All round the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. Today we are talking with Professor Stefan Durkan, the author of Dull Disasters, How Planning Ahead Will Make a Difference. Um, Stefan, can you give us a few examples on what this uh, financial um, uh, architecture could look like? Yes. Oh, well, yes. Um, so the easiest way to think about it is that, you know, when you are faced with big catastrophic risks, like for hurricanes or for droughts or for indeed for a pandemic like Ebola, is that, you know, these are extreme events and they would require quite a lot of, of, of resources at that moment. And, you know, for a poor country, they can't simply go to the central bank and borrow some money and it will be easily done. You know, the sums involved are, are dramatic. So one of the ways to, to start thinking about this is, is essentially saying that, you know, big organizations or indeed governments in these settings, they should start thinking as if they are operating as an insurance company, as if they are trying to build up their thinking like insurance. So they're thinking about the contingent liability they're facing, and then they have choices. They can do simply, as for example, in Mexico is now done for natural disasters, every year on the budget, they just allocate a particular sum, which is taken out of government and put in a fund that it can't be touched unless there is an earthquake. And there are very clear rules in which this can be used, and everybody knows exactly what's happening. It's part of the reason why systems in Mexico now actually started working so much better, because there's clarity about the money that will be available. And in fact, they have almost something like lists of infrastructure that are priority, that if they are destroyed, this money can be used for. So that's one thing. So you put money aside and, and you do this. You could, the thing you want to avoid at the same time is to simply keep it within government because, you know, every year I have a contingency fund, but then nothing happens. So that money will be quickly spent and then, then that's not quite right. So taking this out of government is quite good. The same thing, what is not so helpful usually is um, having to quickly reallocate your money. So, uh, you know, that's very hard. I remember working in this UK government department when we had to find about uh, one or two billion to deal with Ebola. Of course, all of the budgets had to be squeezed, and that's a really big thing. Something much more sensible we could have done is to actually every year bought essentially an insurance policy for basically this extreme event and basically insure our balance sheet in case we needed to have some of these extreme events. The same governments can actually take insurance for some of these big natural disasters. 
And there's a beauty to do this taking this off the balance sheet uh, as whether it's by insurance or putting it in a fund because it makes it much clearer to get rule-based action. So you basically will know when the money comes, the triggers. You can do that. You can design it much more better. And actually, it's a way to also make sure that politicians don't get tempted or get pushed to start money, to start spending money on things they shouldn't be spending it in the aftermath of a disaster. So, so you can do this. And we see now, you know, countries like Indonesia, after a recent uh, series of typhoons, we know the Philippines, they start using these instruments. And actually, it's already quite a lot better in terms of the way these responses are happening. And I think it's that kind of architecture. It would be really helpful if that became part of the mindset also of big humanitarian organizations. I'm not trying to say that they should buy insurance and everything is sorted. It's very hard to know what exactly would be needed. But somehow start getting a little bit away from the begging bowls and having just a much more longer-term planning financially around how do we deal with the risks which they need to try to help deal with in the world um, over the coming years. Well, it's interesting that you, you mentioned that because I'm thinking, you know, uh, you mentioned mindset, actually, that is it a, can it be a case of, you know, changing the way people view this rather than we need money for disasters or set aside money for disasters and changing the mindset to why don't we proactively mitigate disasters? You know, you mentioned Philippines, yep. where I know for a fact, because I was in middle uh, Philippines less than a year ago, I know they are um, fixing some of their floodplains on their rivers so that when they do have floods, it's not going into the city. It's not finished yet, so they're still experiencing it. But I know they're spending money to do that so they don't encounter that, you know, in the future. So is it a, a case of trying to get people to think in uh, risk mitigation terms? Yes. No, and that's an excellent point. And you're absolutely right. But it's really interesting that when we see when, when, when we see what's happening in countries, that you know they are they recognize oh we could do some risk mitigation and then they start looking at some of the sums involved. Of course, they can't totally zero risk it. You know, especially with climate change, it's going to be close to impossible to, of course, remove all the risk. But indeed, some of the things mm-hmm. that you just described, you know, some of these resiliency uh, type of activities related to floodplains and, and, and better urban planning, they're all very sensible. But these things cost quite a lot of money. Now, one of the advantages of getting also the responses to be part of a planning process beforehand and even talking about, thinking about, should I buy insurance, should I put money aside? What you're actually doing is making it explicit what each of the two will cost. Is it going to be better to start putting buying an insurance policy or, or shall I actually try to actually get the floodplains uh, to be better protected or having fewer people mm-hmm. living there? This is exactly the same we would do it. You know, we will get a discount on our insurance if we are uh, putting smoke alarms, if we're putting uh, burglar alarms in our houses. It's a bit like that, you know. We start doing the calculus and say, oh, well, I can see, I can buy protection for when I'm burglar or when my house burns down, but actually it's quite expensive. So why don't I actually put these little things in and suddenly you get a reduction in the cost of the responses? So what you're actually doing is just making risks beforehand more explicit and you actually do a risk calculus and you do a, a sensible cost-benefit analysis. And very strikingly, it rarely happens around mitigation or resilience type of work. It's usually not juxtaposed relative to actually what would be the cost of the response. And so one of the ways now to do this is to actually get, and that's the first step for all the things that we, what we propose, is having a dialogue about what are these risks and is it now better to mitigate it or to be better protected or having the resources to respond if it happens. Any sensible policy will have to do a bit of both. And then you can start weighing which one will be the most effective, the most um, uh, efficient in, in cost terms and so on. Is there any challenges to doing that, though? Just out of curiosity, because I know, you know, having been through some uh, risk assessments, you know, with organizations, you know, they can be a lengthy process. 
Yes. No, you're absolutely right. This is also why we better start planning ahead and not waiting too long. But <laughs> it, you're absolutely right. But one of the things, again, why this now can be done, and we couldn't easily do it 20, 30 years ago, is actually science. We just have much better data. We, can, we are in a much better position to start predicting. You know, you mentioned floodplains. You know, hydrology maps of, uh, of countries, they start emerging, and actually the modeling becomes possible. You can start much better predicting where would be the weak spots, where would you actually invest in resilience, and where we actually probably would have to allow that one, every 100 years or every 50 years there may indeed be a flood, and we must make sure we have a response. Similarly, um, which would be the populations at risk. We have just better data. We can more easily reach them. We can reach them with mobile phones. So we can pre-plan how do we get money quickly to them. We can send it by, by mobile phones to them and so on. Again, science and the progress we're making with technology allows us to, to do all these things better. Think also of simply the prediction of when a storm will hit. We've made massive improvements. And it's an interesting example from what you were describing, that actually, you know, we will know well beforehand, so we can dramatically reduce the cost of response simply by knowing that a disaster may well hit a bit earlier, so we can remove people from the areas and so on. And that's not anymore just something we do in Florida, so to speak. We do this now in poorer settings as well. We can't avoid it entirely. The Mozambique um, hurricane uh, or the, 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 the big storm that hit, I think, last year was very striking because a big, the, the first hit of the storm of the country was actually broadly avoided because information had been spread and so on. But, of course, with climate change, weather patterns come a bit unpredictable, and they actually have a situation where the storm didn't hit once. Went, but it went back into the sea and then hit again. And that's when the big mm -hmm. damage was done because that they haven't quite been able to predict. And then uh, you still need the response as well. So we can do this much better. But we can, we can do this you know, in a way that in poorer settings now, in a better way than we probably could do 30, 40 years ago in the U.S. or in Europe uh, at that. And that's, that's quite remarkable that we can do this for much poorer countries already so much better. Well, I guess you know, they say data is the, the new currency, really. So I, I guess having all this data helps people plan better, respond better. And with the advent of social media and the Internet, of course, they can share data faster now. No, that's absolutely right. And that's, 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 that's an essential part of, of, of all these things. Um, we can use data much better to, to plan ahead, to think through scenarios, think through what is the financing that we need to prearrange, what are the nature of the responses. During crisis, we can follow much better and fine-tune our responses much better if you want to do. We can also do things like, which I'm really personally excited about, is that you know, in very poor settings, we can set up, you know, taking drought-prone areas in Ethiopia and Somalia, we can now today, before crisis happens, just connect everybody with mobile phones, having all the details, and make a pre-planned a pre um, response plan, so to speak, uh, on, in terms of saying knowing exactly when and how we will send money to, to these people when something happens even if, we're, if there were conflicts and whatever. So we can do all kinds of things we couldn't do. Um, and data is what allows us to, to, to prepare for it, and um, technology allows us to act much better. But there is one thing, though, that we should not forget. We've invested in early warning systems in lots of settings for a very long time. And may I remind you of the example of Ebola in West Africa? We knew in February uh, 2014 that there was a crisis. We knew, and that's actually with droughts we usually know already. Actually, early uh, warning systems using data is, is not really enough. What you need is early action system. Action triggers sets with the data that actually the responses are start happening. And that's the, the other part of it. It has to be about action. It can't just be about information. That's true. You know, there's got to be action. I, I can't believe we only have four minutes left uh, in our final segment, uh, Stefan. So can you take two minutes and uh, or two, three minutes and kind of give us your final thoughts on this? Right. Look, I'm, I hope it comes across. I'm actually quite excited by the possibilities. You know, this is not a kind of 
um, somehow thinking and describing how everything all goes wrong. You know, what we want to present in our book, and since then we've been working very actively with quite a lot of countries and also at the level of humanitarian organizations, is to actually say, well, you know, we can do this so much better. And we can actually get several of these steps. It's not somehow a utopian dream. We see examples where we can start doing this much better. You know, it saves lives. It saves livelihoods for people. You know, better and faster and more effective responses will change people's lives or it will avoid them to drift into to, to, to deep poverty. It's, I do think that actually since the publication of the book, we, we have been able to get quite a lot of organizations to pay attention. So we were so pleased that, you know, the World Bank has been working on related ideas and they've used some of our frameworks. The International Monetary Fund actually has been using our framework for something that, that they encourage countries to do in preparation on the economic cost of these disasters. We know of uh, humanitarian organizations to start doing this. So, you know, it's not that we invented all these things, um, but it mm-hmm. is definitely a moment. The moment for change is actually at the moment. The, the interest is there. You know, it needs still the political will to make sure that the systems are put in place uh, to, 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 uh, to actually capture their potential now. But, you know, I'm an optimist for these things, and I don't think we've had <laughs> ever a better opportunity to combine, you know, good thinking, science, innovation in financial markets, and just some very good common sense about politics and policy making to actually make a substantial difference for a lot of people. Well, it would be nice to see common sense uh, make a resurgence. It, lately, it doesn't seem to be as uh, common as it once was. So it we've come, come back. To, <laughs> well, and, yeah, exactly, yes. Well, thanks again for being on the show, uh, Professor. And I, I want to remind everyone the book, Dull Disasters, How Planning Ahead Will Make a Difference. Um, and we have we do have to give a shout out to uh, Daniel Clark, in case I didn't uh, mention his name earlier. He was the co-author with you, correct? He was absolutely. He's a, he's a brilliant man. Uh, I've worked with him for a long time. And, you know, he's probably far brainier than I am. So I'm totally reliant <laughs> on him as well. <laughs> well, Daniel, if you're listening, there you go. You got uh, a big thank you from uh, Professor Stefan there. So thank you again for joining us. And to everyone listening, uh, again, if there's any topics you want us to talk about on the show or you want to be on the show, please feel free to send me an email, any sponsorships. Again, I will be in Seoul, Korea at the Teams Conference, November 12th to 15th. And today's show was brought to us by the people at BoastAssessment.com. Check out their site and their product. And in the meantime, thanks to uh, Stefan for joining us. Thanks to everyone at Voice America. And in the meantime, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.